This is the time we need to write and make art for the sake of healing our souls and enriching our communities. Welcome to Artemis Speaks. So just slow down in life Because you can't buy back your time Hello and welcome to our podcast today. I'm very excited about our guest. It's a bit of a departure from what we normally do. We have been interviewing artists and writers and people with the arts. Today we're going to be interviewing a very special journalist. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for his investigative series on South Carolina's uh, problem with domestic violence of women. Uh, Doug Pardue has had a stellar career, and he will be joining us today, as I said, and I'm really thrilled. I knew Doug back in the day when he was writing for the Roanoke Times, so it's been great to catch up with him and watch his stellar career as a journalist. He has uh, retired in 2017 from a 47-year journalist career, most of the time as an investigative reporter and editor with daily newspapers. He was the lead reporter on a four-member team at the Post and Courier in South Carolina that won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize Gold Medal for Public Service. This is the Pulitzer's top award, and he won for a five-part investigative series titled Till Death Do Us Part. The series examined why South Carolina was one of the ten deadliest states for women at the hands of men for 17 years, the entire time national records have been kept. Here at Artemis Journal, we're very interested in this subject as back in 1977, Artemis Journal was born out of writing workshops for abused women. So we, we really pay attention to this subject. In fact, 20% of our sales go to shelters for abused women and their families. So during uh, four years, uh, when Doug was investigating this back in 2015, those years, uh, four years, had ranked number one South Carolina as the deadliest in the nation. The story stunned the state's lawmakers, prompting major improvements of state laws that would better protect victims of domestic violence and punish perpetrators. Before joining the Post, he uh, worked with many newspapers. He was an investigative editor for the USA and then went on uh, to Tampa Tribune. Uh, back in the day when I knew him, he was working with the Roanoke Times uh, he had uh, been nominated for a 1990 Pulitzer Prize as a finalist in the General News uh, 
in general news for the coverage of the year-long Pitson coal strike. So he he was noticed early on and kept going until he won in 2015. So I'm very excited to have you. Thank you, Doug, for joining us today. Uh, I'm happy to be with you, Jerry. It's, it's really good to be here. Thanks. Well, it's been great catching up with you and uh, learning all about this. I watched it when you did get it back in the Pulitzer Prize back in 2015. Uh, there had been dozens of bills that died in the legislature in South Carolina because of lack of ex action. So what changed that um, direction, and, and why, did, why did this series get their attention? Well, it's going to sound perhaps uh, trite, but we got their attention by embarrassing them. <laughs> they um, basically had ignored this problem uh, for years and, and, and let, left the state with laws that were incredibly ineffective. Um, what we did was we went out and we counted the number of, uh, of women who had actually been killed over the previous decade. And we ended up with a number of more than 300. And um, just putting that number out there uh, made people stand up and pay attention. Uh, some of the legislators told us that their wives uh, were so upset with them that they pushed them into uh, trying to come up with laws that would improve the situation for, uh, for women in, in the state of South Carolina. And um, we also did a... a, a a part of the series where we showed on one side of the story the the numbers of people who died at various times during the year, and on the other side of the story, where the legislature killed numerous bills that were in were put into effect or were to go into effect to uh, improve the situation for women who were abused. So they basically defeated 12 bills, while I think it was close to 45 people women died in the state. The only bill they passed was a bill that would protect the pet, the dog of the victim while the, uh, she was in hiding. Oh, please. Well, that, no, juxtaposi that juxtaposition of, you know, the bills that died and then the number of women, you know, dying at the same time. I think that was really smart on your part. Well, it tr proved to be very, very effective. And you had other reporters working with you, and this was the first investigative um, procedure that the courier instigated, right? No, no, no. We've been doing investigative stories virtually the whole time. I was hired to start the first investigative reporting team for the Post and Courier. I started off with myself and two reporters. Uh, the Post and Courier now has an investigative team of uh, six reporters. So... It's been growing. The paper specializes in investigative reporting. That's great. Nothing like a Pulitzer Prize to give you the nod to keep <laughs> well, going. The paper has been finalist, I think, uh, five times prior to winning the Pulitzer. Really? Yeah. Impressive. Impressive. Well, how did you come upon the title of this series? It was, what, a five-part series, and the title was Till Death Do Us Part. Well, when you... When you do a, a, an investigative series, you spend usually a couple of weeks just trying to understand what the situation is, counting the numbers, looking where you want to go, who you want to interview. And the first interview we did, I went with uh, Jennifer Barry Hawes, who's one of my co-reporters on the, on the series. Um, 
she uh, she had been a religion reporter at the paper, and uh, I had worked with her when she was uh, covering religion, and I was impressed with her her ability to uh, get almost anybody to uh, agree to be interviewed. And uh, so she and I went to interview the head of uh, a local women's shelter, Ilmira Raven, and we asked her how the how the shelter worked and what was going on, the number of women. She explained all of that to us, walked us through the place. And finally, we sat down with her, and I just looked at her, and I said, uh, Ilmira, tell me, what is it about South Carolina that makes us so mean and vicious to the women we love or once loved? And she looked up at us and said, oh, there's many factors. We're a, we're a southern state that believes in authority. We're, um, we, are, we are poor. We, uh, she listed Thing, name after name, thing after thing that would play into it. And then she came to a spot and she stopped and she said, and then there's that religion thing. And Jennifer and I looked at each other and we go, what? And she goes, till death do us part. And that's the first time it, I've ever known the title of a series before we even started. Yeah. And uh, so that's how the series title came about. And it, religion proved to be a um, uh, key element uh, in the story. So what do you think about Till Death Do Us Part in terms of a religious context? How, how does that play out? Um, South Carolina, especially the upstate, is what you would call the buckle of the Bible belt. It's very, very, very conservative uh, Protestant uh, religions, mainly Baptist very conservative Baptist uh, religion. Um, you know, one of the uh, top uh, uh, conservative uh, Christian uh, universities is up there. Um, uh, and um, so Bob Jones University. So um, our editors were really afraid of this aspect of the story. They thought we were going to get a, a brainstorm, a hailstorm of complaints if we started dealing with religion and putting the finger of blame on religion. Uh, but for us, we, we, we kind of lucked out because we, we got in touch with a sheriff in Oconee County, which is the farthest north county or west county in, in, uh, in the state. It's where the film Deliverance was filmed. And um, so we, um, we went up there to talk to the sheriff because he had been shocked that, that in his tiny conservative religious community, he had had three or four fatal domestic violence cases within a matter of a few months. He was so concerned that he got together with a bunch of religious leaders, community leaders, and others to talk about the problem. And he told us, after talking with the ministers, he found out that the ministers did not consider domestic violence to be a crime. They considered it to be a marital issue. And he said, these ministers, after hearing from these women who were complaining about being abused, would tell them they need to work on their marriage. He said they were literally sending them back into a burning house. And that's what allowed us to get that aspect into the story. We started talking to ministers. We started understanding from their point of view, yes, it was difficult for them. They started bringing in outside specialized counsel whenever a domestic violence case would come up in their church, and they would use the outside uh, counselors to handle the case rather than themselves. And don't you think that carries over to law enforcement as well? When police are called into a domestic violence situation, they often 
look at it that same way. And well, I mean, things have changed a little bit, but often, you know, they encourage people to work it out. They send the woman back into the same, you know, dangerous situation. And uh, that is that is always been a problem it still is a problem some some jurisdictions have have become very advanced in the way they deal with it charleston charleston city has developed a fairly effective uh, um, crew that deals with domestic violence and they, they send a multiple group of people and including uh including counselors and and other aspects of the community to help to help in the situation but as a whole I think most police departments are like when I first started covering police, there'd be a domestic violence case and the police would go, oh, it's a domestic violence case. No one wanted to handle it. No one wanted to deal with it. And just when they got there, they would say, is everybody okay? Unless people were bleeding badly, they would generally just say, okay, and kiss up and, and right. don't do it anymore. Calm down. Leave. Just get back. Yeah. Be normal. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, it's a crime that is not taken as seriously as it ought to be, because generally domestic violence is a crime of secrecy. It goes on in the privacy of a home. And in fact, we found out that many domestic abusers uh, purposely do not hit the woman in a place that can be seen. So they tend to be body blows. And uh, so uh, it's a, it's an insidious crime. And, and they, they estimate that only one in nine or 10 actually gets reported. In South Carolina, they're, they're uh, there reported there were 36,000 cases of domestic violence in one year. If you multiply that times nine, you get to the quarter million people, uh, victims, really fast. It still goes on, and there's been this oh. national case now um, with this young woman, 21-year-old woman, traveling with her boyfriend out west in their van, and they actually had some law enforcement uh, came in and just didn't take any action and tried to soothe it and left her with the boyfriend. And then, of course, they found her dead, and now we're looking for the boyfriend. So it still happens, and, uh, you know, it's 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 a problem. And like you said, underreported. Uh, that's why back in <laughs> 1977, when I started the writing workshops, I just saw it as a, a perpetual problem. And how do we get out of the syndrome? And I thought, well, if we start writing workshops, maybe we'll give these women the best weapon of all to start writing about what happens to them and uh, start talking about it. Because often the victims don't even talk about it as well. They're embarrassed. They do not want family members of their community to know that this is a problem within their relationship. So they cover it up. And... Uh, yeah. So you, when you joined the Courier, that was back in, uh, what, 2015? 2003. Oh, 2003. Okay. Correct. So then you were the investigative, you started their investigative uh, department, Team, yes, right? Yes, that's, that's true. And so then you, how long did you last there after the Pulitzer Prize? Did you move on? How long did I last after Pulitzer? Uh, that's a good way to put it. Well, it's a good I place retired, to retire, uh, right? That's pretty hard. Yeah, I retired in uh, April, first uh, of April, 2017. So that's a little more than two years. Uh huh. Uh huh. And you live with your uh, wife Judy. You My three, lovely wife Judy. Yeah, and uh, three children, and how many grandchildren? Well, they're all gone. They're they're all uh, out on their own. So well, I have good three daughters and eight grandchildren. Uh huh. Uh-huh. 
So um, what do you think, with your background, made this happen more than anything else you've done? You, you've written some good, you know, articles, but what about your background that prompted this? Um, you know, I, I've always been curious about things. I think it's curiosity that, that drove this, made this happen, or made me, help me be involved. And it may be partially because of my upbringing as an army brat. We moved all over the place, never lived in any place longer than, than three years, and one usually. And so I, let, I, I saw different communities, different places, and I, and I would see how people lived. And in many of those places, they did not live very well. So I developed a, a sense of compassion and sympathy and empathy for the underdog, the downtrodden. And I always would ask the question, why is it that way? And I think that's what led me to uh, investigative reporting. Ultimately, I, I actually sometimes call investigative reporting "how come" reporting. How come is like that? Um, for, for example, when I first drove into South Carolina, uh, I noticed that there was nothing but trees. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking as I'm driving, "Why are there so many trees? This is one of the 13 original colonies." And um, uh, so when I when I got when I first hired my staff, I had one of my reporters go out and find out how much land is in trees in South Carolina, and it and we found out that one quarter of all the land in South Carolina at that time was owned or controlled by paper companies. And we went on to do a year long series called King Paper. And so it just shows you that what I'm getting at is that some of the best investigative reporting is is some of the most obvious things and we don't we don't cover them because we they're so obvious we don't see them and that was the problem with this one it was so obvious that we ignored it for 17 years remember before we wrote our series south carolina had never less the worst left the worst 10 in the country and had been uh the uh, the worst in the country on four occasions the number one bad state for domestic deaths of women. And so we had ignored it. So this time what made it different was we suddenly said, whoa, how come we're that bad? And that's what drove us to do the story. What do you think the underlying motive is for someone to inflict violence on their mate? What is that about? Uh, uh, underlying motive for domestic violence? Right, for, for a man yeah. to... Yeah, it's control. control. It's uh, it's not really brutality, but that's what they resort to. It's control. Uh, the signs of domestic violence begin long before the violence. It begins with isolation, where the man, uh, sometimes the woman, where the man uh, wants to keep control of the woman. He starts following her. He starts going with her to her doctor's visits. He starts, he censors her phone calls. He starts cutting off her relations with the people she loves most. He, he basically ends up isolating her. And, um, and then when she rebels or if she rebels or if she says anything uh, against his will, that's when the violence starts. In fact, you know, my suspicion would be on the case of the lady in, in, uh, in Wyoming that she went up and apologized to some people for his actions and the way he behaved. And I'm going to bet you that he knew that or he found out that she apologized or he, she apologized in front of the other people. And when they got back to the privacy of wherever their privacy was, he beat her, right. killed her. Right. Exactly. If I'm not pre-convicting him. But it looks like that. 
I mean, certainly, he's disappeared. He's gone. He's on the run. Yeah. If he's alive. Well, how did the laws change after this series? And the laws changed dramatically and in swiftly. Uh, South Carolina rarely does anything in one session of a legislature. This happened in one session. Complete change of laws. When we did our series, uh, a woman who was beaten by a man, the, the first time domestic violence carried it was a misdemeanor and carried a maximum sentence of 30 days in jail, and almost nobody got it. Almost everybody walked free on probation or something. And at that same time, if you beat your dog, you faced up to five years in prison on a felony. <laughs> you, you're it's getting amazing. a pattern here. <laughs> yes, isn't that incredible? I know. The dog's and more valuable than your wife or your girlfriend. Oh, yeah. please, that's It was terrible. our exposure of those kinds of dichotomies uh-huh. that embarrassed the legislature. In fact, you know, when we said that there were more than 300 women killed in domestic violence over the decade, what does that mean, 300? I mean, is that a lot? Is that a little? Uh, you know, how does that... How does that rate? So what we did is we tried to compare it to something that would make people stand up and pay attention. South Carolina is a very pro-military state. And uh, so we decided to compare it to the number of soldiers and sailors and airmen from South Carolina who'd been killed in the war in Iraq. So we, um, we added it up and it paled in comparison. So we added the war in Afghanistan. And when you added up all of the people from South Carolina who were killed in the, in the entire wars and, and uh, up to that point in Iraq and Afghanistan, the number of women killed in domestic violence on the home front was more than three times as high as the total loss of lives in war. And that's the ones that had been reported, and you said there's a lot that are not reported. Well, that's the deaths. Most of the deaths get reported. They just don't get reported in any organized fashion. They tend to be, you almost have to go to each county to find out, or each jurisdiction to find out the number of deaths and to confirm details about people. And this led to, uh-huh, go ahead. Go ahead. In fact, we were putting together a database so we could determine what were the, what were the characteristics of the people who were killed and, um, and, and the types of weapons that were used and all this sort of thing. And, and we were also trying to determine the race of people and ethnicity and some of us not included on that. So we ended up using a database that showed us pictures of tombstones. And sometimes tombstones have a picture of the, the deceased on the tombstone. So we were able to make some confirmations that way. And this led you into coroners and how deaths are reported. <laughs> and didn't you do a follow-up on coroners? We, we actually, I, I, done a, I did a series on coroners uh, years earlier. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and basically, we discovered that in South Carolina at the time, a, a coroner um, uh, did not have to have any medical training whatsoever. Uh, and um, in fact, at that time, we had one coroner who was blind. We were trying to figure out <laughs> how to determine the cause of death. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and another coroner who uh, declared a, that a person who had died of a heart attack after being stabbed in the heart <laughs> but unfortunately, that one did not pretty... lead to a, uh, that series did not lead to a lot of change. We still have a coroner system. All they've done is upgrade the amount of training they have to have. But most of them now do send the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 exam to a medical examiner at a hospital to do the forensic work, and the coroner still de- decides the manner of death. 
Well, how do you become a coroner? Do you run for an office? How do you, or how do you become a coroner? I don't even know. How do you get that position? Is that appointed? You, it's elected in our state. Elected. So you could run. Yeah. So you wake yeah. up and say, I don't have any job prospects, but I could be a coroner. Yeah. Oh. Well, guess what the profession is of most of the of many of the coroners, especially in rural counties. I have no idea. It's a mortician. A mortician. Oh, easy. They run the funeral homes. Uh huh. So guess where most of the bodies end up going? Yeah, that's a nice uh, nice way to feed your business into your own business. Well, uh, this is just amazing. Uh, I'm going to close up here, but I, I, did you always want to become a writer? Was this your? No, actually, um, I thought my brother was going to be the writer. I um, I was actually a horrible writer, even when I started journalism. The only thing that made it work is I was very curious. So I, I, could, I was a good reporter. I was just a rotten writer. And um, it took me almost 10 years as a, as a reporter before I started focusing on writing. I kept wondering why somebody else in the newsroom who wrote about 10 stories a year was winning all these awards and I would, wasn't winning all these awards. <clears throat> and um, uh, so I started uh, studying writing again, looking at my old books, my old grammar books, and started paying attention to why a book suddenly made me scared or why someone made me happy when I was reading it and started paying attention and reading good writers and asking how come they're so much better than I am. Uh, and so, yeah, I just really started working on it and, uh, and, uh, and focus, paying, atten paying attention and going to writers workshops to start honing my skill as it were. What are your so, future yeah. plans? Are you just enjoying life? And yeah, I want to get out of the pandemic. Is what I want. Yeah, all of us, <laughs> we're ready. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping to um, begin traveling again. Uh, I've. Uh, I'm toying with a uh, short story that I might write, uh, but haven't de haven't decided it, it's uh, whether I'll do it or not. It really um, stems from my uh, uh, my mother and her friends when she was aging, and uh, they would play bridge together. And I would probably call it Sunday Afternoon Bridge Bridge Club. And uh, these women were all in various stages of declining health. And uh, one was always constantly asking, what's Trump's? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, So they all had various little firmities, but they always got together to play bridge. That's so, important, uh, isn't it? Well, yeah, that could be a good story. We'd look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> Doug, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's It's been a thank you really for insightful me. interview. So glad you did the work you did and uh, look forward to more work from you besides living the life of leisure off your island uh, out of South Carolina. So I'm going to close today. Thank you so much uh, for our people who join us. Thank you, Skip Brown, for making this happen at Final Track Studios. And I want to close again saying that uh, we support domestic violence shelters for people who go through that process. And part of our proceeds from our journal are donated to these uh, shelters here in southwest Virginia. You can listen to the archive podcast on our website, ArtemisJournal.org. And until next time, thank you for joining us. I'm Jerry Rogers. Can
You've been listening to Artemis Speaks. Artemis is a charitable organization now 43 years old and has evolved to be all-inclusive, a journal with essays, poetry, and art. 10% of the journal's sales are donated to a women's shelter in southwest Virginia. If you're interested in learning more, artemisjournal.org. You can mail us directly to P.O. Box 505, Floyd, Virginia, 24091. The closing music and the opening music you're listening to is Jordan Harmon. The song is Just Slow Down, a very appropriate comment for the times that we're in. If you want to read, you have to slow down. Artemis Speaks, the podcast, is recorded twice monthly at Final Track Studios in Roanoke, Virginia. All rights reserved and is co-produced by Jerry Rogers and Skip Brown. He loves so much. Can anybody tell me? It became so cool We got everybody walking around Trying to do the same thing That everybody else they do And you know Oh yes you know You gotta be yourself Yourself is all you got and all you got is what you need Look in the mirror, see it clearer The answer's staring at you And so just slow down in life Because you can't buy back your time And you know you can't lose time Just slow down.